Guys, we've been walking through a series over the last couple weeks called Dismantling Myths of the Modern Mind, which, oh, which I just, I know I've mentioned, I'm just so happy about the branding. It just made me so happy. Um, but don't think they just threw a branding at me and said, can you come up with a series with this? I did actually want to do something along these lines. Uh, but basically what we've been talking about is not only maybe even how individually we start to kind of drink the cultural water that we swim in every day, and we swim in it every day. I mentioned a few weeks ago the idea that, that you and I are living what, what uh, some authors have called digital Babylon, meaning that the culture of our world is not left outside the doors of our house. It's as far as our hand reaches, right? It's wherever our phones can reach us, whether it's Netflix, whether it's our TV, our computers, whatever, the culture of the world is, is infiltrating. And we see it kind of take over our lives, or worst case, we don't see it taking over our lives. It just becomes a part of the air we breathe, and we don't even resist it. We don't even push back in many ways. So we talked about the way um, the digital, kind of our digital world has kind of been influencing us. Um, we've talked uh, about, what did, I, what did I talk about last week? <laughs> wow. We talked about the stories that we listen to. Don't, don't do that on the spot, poor people. Um, we talked about the stories that were being given by the world, by, by Netflix, by Disney, and, and the stories that they're, they're, how they're trying to give us an identity and hope and joy where they have no right to give us hope, identity, and joy. But in ways, they do point to a greater story that all of creation is looking for, that all of creation wants to find. And so in many ways, many of the stories that, that we watch and that other people, that, that non-Christians are, are feeding on, are actually, in some ways, we can take advantage of that because it's preparing their hearts to hear the gospel. And there's many conversations that can be had over watching different TV shows and things like that. But ultimately that God wants to invite us into a much greater story and that our stories make more, make more sense, make, have their fullest uh, reality when we find ourselves in God's story. Well, today we're going to talk uh, a bit about marriage so the story, sort of the, the message this morning is for married people. Uh, it's also for single people. It's for people who want to get married, people who don't want to get married, people who were married and aren't married anymore. If you don't think you fall into any of those categories, please touch base with me after, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, we live in a, in a, in a, in a sex culture, a sex-saturated um, culture culture, a sex-elevating culture. Commercials, Netflix, pornography, music, video games, all, all saturated with, with a sexual ethic that, that's kind of lived out like a Coke commercial. Hey, you be you. Just you be you, whatever. Without, without question of, of health, without cons consideration of, of the fact that we are more than just a physical body. And this is not new. It's not the worst it's ever been. In the time that Paul was writing, and during the time of the explosion of the gospel in the first century, there was prostitution. There was all sorts of temple prostitution, prostitution that, that was kind of met and mingled in with religion and all that kind of stuff. And this was, it was a sex-saturated culture in Rome and all those cities that were influenced by Rome. So we're not in the worst culture that there ever has been although it does have some influences to us in new ways. Uh, it was so much of, of the cultural water that they were drinking, so much so that Paul had to speak to the church in Corinth and say, you guys are doing things sexually that pagans would be embarrassed about. 
but you're, you're calling it freedom. You need to be careful. And in the midst of, of all of this in Paul's day and in our day, there is pain and there is brokenness when we step away from the sexual ethic that is laid down in Scripture. In the wake of all this kind of freedom was this, was this pushing aside of, of women, pushing aside of children, much like women and children are treated today with the sexual ethic. Without fail, anytime sexuality is misunderstood or manipulated, it is women and children who suffer. That's the way it's been all throughout history. It was true then and it is true today. And so it's into this cultural ethic that Paul writes this, a letter to this church in Corinth. I want you to grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. If you want to go on to the cachurch.info um, app or, or, or address, and, and it'll have all the scripture and all the, the, the points that I'm going to be making this morning, and then you can email that to yourself. Paul is, is introducing in, in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's kind of peppered throughout both letters, is, is a safe, life-enhancing, I would say in their day and our day, poverty-reducing way of approaching marriage and approaching single life. So out of respect for God's word, we're going to start by reading 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 7. Out of respect for God's word, let's stand. We always need to remember when we're reading a text like this that there's, there's two sides of a conversation. So you can see this right here that Paul's responding to something he's heard from the church. It says, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife, gives authority, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. God, we invite you to be a part of our conversation this morning in a conversation that can be very uncomfortable. Not even because of, of sexual content, but just because it pushes up on what we have been taught to accept as the norm and be taught to accept as health and flourishing. And so God, through your spirit, speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. Guys, you can take a seat. Whenever the Bible talks about marriage or the single life, which Paul does in this text, we're going to see more of it. The point is personal, communal, and social health, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That is the goal. It's not to put shackles on us. It's not to weigh us down with law. It's meant to give us flourishing and health. When we, when we look at our relationships, our culture looks at our relationships, we, we tend to, when we talk about sexuality, to limit it to the physical. That we are, we, at a base level, sex does not affect us. We're, we're almost robotic. We can divvy up our mind, our heart, our soul from our sexuality. But scripture makes it very clear that we are not only physical, or we're not even just only physical and emotional beings. We are spiritual beings. That what happens with our body involves our mind and our soul. 
Our sexuality is not unrelated to our spiritual health. Oh man, if our culture could get this, what that would mean for our culture. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, Paul says this, run from sexual sin. Sounds harmless, doesn't it? Paul seems to think it's harmless. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality, sex done outside the biblical mandate of sex within marriage is a sin against our own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Guys, you need to realize when a Jew writes about the temple, he is not writing anything lighthearted. That, 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 that is such intense language. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price, the price of his son's life. So you must honor God with your body. If we are Christ followers, we must honor God with our bodies. So there are spiritual implications to our sexual expression. What we do with our bodies says something about how we see ourselves in Christ, how we see the world, and ultimately what we do with our bodies expresses who we ultimately belong to. Who do we belong to? The Apostle John, he loves this theme of of marriage in in, in his gospel, and and the New Testament writers love this. He uses it throughout in order to to explain uh, Jesus and his mission. When, When John the Baptist is speaking in John 3, he says this to the crowd. He says, you yourselves know how plainly I told you. I'm not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend, which John's saying he he is, is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. There's this beautiful metaphor of Christ as a groom coming and receiving his bride throughout, throughout the New Testament. Later in, in, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, he says, I hope you will put up with a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me, for I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the servant. Paul sees himself as almost a matchmaker between the church and Christ. He's like, don't mess this up. I just see him sitting down at, at Red Robins and he's like, dude, I, I, I hooked you up. You guys were perfect for each other and you're on the verge of ruining it. Don't mess up this relationship. Don't two-time Christ. That, that's the language here. Your body belongs to your husband. Church, our heart, mind, and soul, our bodies belong to Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, Speaking of this marriage model of, of marital love uh, and how it, how it relates to our relationship with Christ. Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Let that sink in, husbands. <laughs> love your wives as Christ loves the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Throughout scripture, marriage is always, uh, would always be this comparison of Jesus and his church or God and his people. It's, it's language that, that God loves to use. 
about the intimacy and his, his unrelentless love for his people. Paul's saying, don't cheat on that. Human marriage is the earthly acting out of this divine plan, of the gospel's divine plan for the world. That's why husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Why, that's why there's humility even in the sexual relationship between both partners. God willed for Christ and the church to become one body displayed in its unity. So he willed for marriage to reflect this pattern. That's why a husband and wife become one flesh, it says in Genesis 2. This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. It's not just sexuality. It's everything about you is bound up with this person. There's, there's an intense unity in a marriage and it's, it's the closest metaphor that the biblical writers can come up with to talk about what the relationship the church ought to have with Christ, what that ought to look like. Nothing should come between it. That's why sexuality taking place in a covenantal relationship is so paramount to what it means to live out our sexuality as Christians. And, and when a Christian says, I do, they understand that their marriage is a microcosm of the cosmic work of God. It's, it's a relationship that is meant to bring life because God brings life. It's, it's meant to, to nourish. We're meant to nourish each other because God seeks our well-being and our health. It's, it's redemptive in that it's founded on serving each other in humility. It's, it moves forward by an ongoing heart of forgiveness. And all the husbands said, Amen. <laughs> It's meant to show the, the safety found in and the, the self-sacrifice of Christ. A mutual submission of our lives physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So guys, if you wonder, if you wonder why Orthodox Christianity holds so strongly to Orthodox traditional marriage, why it fights to see the sacrament of marriage held in high esteem, this is why. If you wonder why a pastor and a, the church will hit again and again on the danger and the lack of wisdom of being unequally yoked, this is why. Why the church laments that so many are happy to settle with marrying a good person, even if they don't know Jesus. This is, this is why it's dangerous and unwise. Why the church laments that so many are willing to give themselves physically and emotionally because you can't do one without the other. It's why the church laments at that and laments people who claim to have this relationship with Christ but have no interest in, in living that out in their sexuality. This is why. And people have told me, listen, I will settle for a good person because I can't find a Christian person. And I don't want to live a lonely life. And my heart breaks for you. I mean that. I, I, I get it. And I can't, I can't imagine the pain and the loneliness that must be. But I will tell you, the loneliness of living in a covenantal relationship with, who, with someone who does not recognize your covenantal relationship with Jesus will be far more lonely. When you're making a passionate desire to follow Christ and the person you are in covenant with has no desire to do so, that will be far more lonely. It will mean, this is what inevitably it will mean. It will mean that you are going to push your partner aside because you're pursuing Christ, or you're going to push Christ aside because you're going to pursue a relationship with your spouse. 
someone's going to take a sideline. The idea, many of the ideas that we have towards marriage and the way we look at marriage comes from a very limited understanding of what marriage is and, and possibly just misconceptions of what marriage is. There are a lot of modern misunderstandings of marriage, and I just want to look at a few of those. One is this. One is that uh, one misunderstanding of marriage is that marriage is built on feeling, not covenant. Feeling, not covenant. Now, for those of us who've been married for a while, and you go and you watch um, young people get married, which, as I've made very clear, makes me very happy when young Christians get married. Um, I've, I've counseled quite a few people to, to get married, and, and I always love when they say, can we write our own vows? It's always my favorite part. I mean, the ones that have been around for 2,000 years are pretty good, but can we write our own vows? And I don't mind people writing their own vows, but I just say, yeah, you can write your own vows. Share from your heart. I, we, my wife and I wrote our own vows, but I will say, you can write your own vows, share them, but then we're going to do some traditional vows because you are going to commit in sickness and in health and you're going <laughs> to commit for richer and for poor. But any of us who've been married for a while and we, we watch, uh, and I, I actually want to encourage anyone who's married, you should go to a, a wedding at least once or twice a year. Just listen to young people renew their vows and in your mind go, yep, and I'm still in. I'm still in. I'm still in. But as you and I have done, if you've been married for a while, well, let's say if you've been married for a week (laughs) and and you listen to someone, a young couple giving their vows and say, you know, I just, you complete me. And I didn't even know who I was until I met you. People who've been married for a week or more probably throw up a little bit in their, in their mouth. <laughs> and we might say, oh, that, that, that's kind of cute, but that's not really, <laughs> that's not the fuel for your marriage. Trying to fuel a marriage by those, that, that love feeling, that, that love feeling, the, the, the warm, fuzzy feeling, that when you try to use that to cover up some real deep issues, that's just like spraying perfume on a foul, foul odor. Eventually that that perfume's going to fade away and that odor's still going to be there. The flowers and the chocolates aren't going to pull it off. The jewelry, the new car is not going to pull it off unless you have something fundamentally going on that's deeper than a sense of love. So if someone says to me and I say, why are you getting married? And they say, well, we love each other. And I'm like, that's it? (laughs) There better be more than that (laughs) because he's not always going to have all that hair on his head. He's going to look very different. I like what Stanley Hauerwas says. He says this. He says, the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. What about those days when those vows have to actually kick in? And the feelings of love are not there. The, the romance isn't quite the same. Guys, I used to buy my beautiful <laughs> wife gifts like jewelry and earrings and and. We'd go out for romantic dinners and things like that. This year, for Christmas, I bought my wife an anti-anxiety blanket and an orthopedic pillow. <laughs> Hashtag true love. Okay? That's, that's marriage for the long haul. <laughs> that's what it starts to look like. <laughs> it's not about feeling. It's about covenant. That's why Paul says there needs to be devotion to prayer and that takes precedent over sex. Put sex on hold and pray. 
think marriage is based on, on a satisfying sex life. Paul says it, it's based on humility, submission, and putting all else aside and praying. Recognizing that this relationship is taking place in a much larger story. In verses four to five, as we read, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy. See the, the connection that's going on in this, in this ideal relationship that he's, that he's laying out for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. I swear I left that, right? Yeah, okay. See, this, the view of marriage often, this, this idea of, of feeling over covenant, we see where that leads, don't we? Because those feelings disappear. The world's already told us what you do. I mean, hey, I, in, my, in my mid-20s, it was friends, and you found the perfect one. And what if they're not the right one? Because it doesn't feel right anymore. Well, then you just move on. And now we, the, the, the rich and the famous, they treat marriage like dating. So that's how we see it displayed. That's not, what, that's not the biblical ethic of marriage. So if we don't see it as covenant, see, what, what, what walking into marriage, understanding it as covenant means, it means that every conversation I have with my wife does not, because I'm not going anywhere and she's not going anywhere. It doesn't just have um, uh, repercussions five minutes from now, it has repercussions five years from now and 10 years from now, and 30, and 40, and 50, because neither of us are going anywhere. When you understand your marriage covenantally, it changes the way every interaction plays out. We see feelings are about the day. Covenant is about life. See, Paul never talks about how great your wedding day should be. You ever notice that? (laughs) He talks about the marriage. We love blowing up the wedding day. And we'll spend more money on the wedding day than we'll spend for the next 50 years of our marriage to make sure that wedding day, especially as if, if we crank that up, that's the, we're just going to ride a wave of romance and beauty that's just going to carry us through. We live now, and we see it portrayed in movies, where the, where the wedding is a mountaintop. In a, in a, in a two-hour rom-com, it's, they've gone through all the troubles you could possibly go through just by dating. And so the ending is what? A beautiful wedding ceremony. See, the Bible flips that on its head. It flips it upside down. The wedding isn't the summit. It's the base of the mountain. That's the beginning of the race. You're nowhere near the the main part yet. It's the starting point. It's not the goal. And the the pinnacle to which we climb and find even a better view of the world, it's, it's far beyond the wedding reception. I wonder, I wonder if instead of seeing the wedding ceremony as the pinnacle of a relationship, we ought to see the 50-year anniversary celebration as the pinnacle of the relationship. And so rather than, and I, have no, I don't have a problem with people posting wedding pictures, obviously. I think it's beautiful that we celebrate that and people before God and before witnesses post that to the world. But I would love it if people have been married for 50 years and, and knew how to use social media. We're posting pictures. <laughs> We're posting pictures of their 50-year wedding anniversary. That's the win. It's, romance is a great starting point, but it's not the race. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who never ended up being able to marry his own fiance because he, he died under Nazi, Nazi occupation, Second World War, he wrote this letter to his niece. He said, it's not your love that upholds marriage, but from now on, it's marriage that upholds your love. It's your covenant before God and man and before your spouse that upholds your love. 
The second misunderstanding of marriage is that, and we see this everywhere, this is a very much a part of our culture today, is, and, and it's made its way into the church, is that even marriage is this giving up of freedom. It, it's, not, it's not a health-seeking endeavor. We're at an interesting time in history. We're part of the Me Too movement, a time where Men are being called out and, and corporations and organizations are being called out for abuse against women and they better be. They ought to be. And there's something in every Christian that should say justice ought to be done in these situations. Why? Because every time we don't understand a proper sexual ethic, women and children get hurt. But the very people who are at the forefront of the Me Too movement are also the people that are making movies that promote the very thing they're trying to fight. Sexual content in movies, in books, is higher than ever. Much of it created by those very people. The very shaky moral ground. It's a time of suggesting that a hookup culture of swiping left and right, where, where sexual expression of any sort is encouraged and promoted as self-health, with, with no emotion or, or spiritual long-term effects, but it's also a time with growing spiritual brokenness and aloneness among those who try to live that ethic out. It's been enhanced. We hear the biblical narrative and we say, not us, we don't need that. Even among many Christians, this, this protective, loving ordinance is dismissed. In Christian Mingle, when the largest online dating site, there was a survey taken. 61% of self-identified Christian singles said they're willing to have sex without being in love. 23% they would have, have sex, uh, they would have to be in love to have sex. And only 11% said they were waiting to have sex until they were married. Only 11 on a Christian hookup site. That is drinking the water of our culture. There's no way around it. In 2016, there was census data that showed that the rate of marriage has been declining since the 60s. <clears throat> That's not a surprise. A study from the National Marriage Project found that many of today's young adults are deciding that saying I do has become too risky, that it's not worth the trade-off involved in giving up their autonomy. Today's singles mating culture is not oriented to marriage. The study says instead it is best described as a low commitment culture of sex without strings, relationships without rings. Relationships without covenant. Yet the data that we find today in the social sciences, shows without fail that a non-marriage culture has tragic consequences. And not just for the adults, but for children. Children of unmarried or divorced parents are far more likely to suffer emotional behavior, health problems. They're at higher risk for crime, poverty, depression, suicide, school difficulties, unmarried pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse. Christian author Nancy Piercy, you should all read Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. She, she goes on to wonder if we would need the majority of the government social programs we, we have today if we were to follow the biblical ethic of marriage. That it would almost obliviate, obliviate, obliterate. Paul makes it clear sexuality has a safe place to play out. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. It's a challenge to sexual immorality to live in 
covenant. It's a protective vessel for our entire being and our culture and our children. In the book, The Shipping News, I have a shot of that. Some of you might remember there was a movie done. One of the characters in this book named Bofield Nutbeam. I mean, come on. Bofield Nutbeam? Are you kidding me? Bofield Nutbeam was, uh, lived in the small town of Killick Claw, Newfoundland. And his one desire is to get away from Killick Claw, Newfoundland. I've never been there, but I'm just judging by the fact that it's Killick Claw, Newfoundland, that that might be my goal as well. So he gets a boat and he's very excited that he is going to be sailing away. The town's excited for him. They get together. They have a celebration. They, they whoop it up. They drink. They get super excited. And while they're celebrating his emancipation and his freedom, they burn down his boat. The very thing they were coming to celebrate was destroyed in their celebration. In our declaration, even among Christians, that we will practice our sexuality outside the confines ordained by God for our health, outside, uh, outside what he has called us to, we celebrate our freedom while we burn down the very vessel that was meant to keep us afloat, to keep us from suffocating, to keep us from drowning. Marriage gifts us freedom and security in a world hell-bent on freedom at the cost of our spiritual and emotional health. It's the very way the devil works. Promises you something while he yanks and poisons you from the other side. Now all that, all that needs to be flipped on its head to say this. Because another misunderstanding of marriage is that it is about finding identity and not simply about a way that we can share mission. But what I mean by that is this. Not every person is on a journey to get married. One of the worst stories told by our culture and, and brought on to the church at times is that marriage is the goal. That marriage is the win. That every person is meant to be married and therefore should pursue marriage at often whatever cost. Singleness is on the rise. And as I said, my, my heart breaks for those who desire to be married and, and are having a hard time because uh, usually women, if I'm honest, uh, are having a hard time finding a good mate because they're all in their basements playing video games. Read, read the statistics. It's video games and pornography. And then we wonder why, why men can't have normal relationships with women. That's why the search is so depressing. And this is where the church has done a great disservice to singles in the church. And I would say to those who, who live even with same-sex attraction, who want to follow Jesus faithfully, we say the only way to do that is you have to get married. That, that's, the, that's, that, that's the greatest ideal. Marriage has been glorified and deified in a way that it never was in Scripture. To hold marriage as the ideal or as God's necessary and perfect will for anyone's life is completely foreign to what Paul tells us. And would be very confusing to, I don't know, John the Baptist? I don't know, Paul? Paul, you're doing a great job. But instead of a third missionary journey, why don't you find a wife? Seems to me our fullest example of a full life, the life that you and I are called to emulate, was not a married one. It was Christ. And regardless of what Dan Brown said in Da Vinci Code, Jesus did not get married. Late theologian Stanley Grentz 
says this in his book on sexual ethics. Contemporary conservative churches often center attention on the nuclear family. Church growth programs, for example, focus on married person, for the church is generally seen as being built on families. As a result, the programming caters to the family. Singleness is readily stigmatized and single persons are relegated to the fringes of the church and its life. Singles groups, even those which receive church support, are often viewed as Christian mate-finding services, or we would say meat markets. Paul is completely against this idea. In, In verses six to nine, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Kind of a a shot at married people, isn't it? Well, if you guys can't handle it, then get married. (laughs) And then in a a longer uh, text here, starting at verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided in the same way a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiance improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It's not a sin. But if he has decided firmly not to marry and there is no urgency and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiance does well and the person who doesn't marry does even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. But in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single. And I think I am giving you counsel from God's spirit when I say this. So is marriage a blessing? Yes. Are children a blessing? (laughs) Where are you, son? Yes. Yes. Usually. But Paul would elevate the single man or woman as those who can can do or work for the kingdom that married people can't. Now, some like to use the phrase called called to singleness. I don't know how many people feel called. Some do. I don't know why we always have to put spiritual language against things. You're called. You're called. Well, that, that feels better. It's not about being called to a single life or called to marriage. That, that isn't the point. The point is, are you called to be Christ-like? And Christ-devoted first, whether you are single or whether you are married. Theologian and, and, and Christian author Preston Sprinkle, who, who writes about culture and sexuality, he says, how do you know you're single? if you're called to be single? If you're single. And then he says this, he says, until God calls you out of singleness into marriage, you are called to steward your singleness as a Christian to the glory of God. Wherever you, all, wherever you are, do all to the glory of God. Offer your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That is your call above all other things. That's your call as a married couple. It's your call as a single person. But Paul makes it pretty clear that the church will be less effective if we were to lose the singles in our midst. 
So all the single ladies, <sighs> glad we only do audio here at Town Center. Single men, the church needs you. It needs what you can do for the church. Without being caught up in all the things that would be your responsibility, were you to be married? You are not a problem to be solved. You are not a person waiting for deliverance. You are positioned and equipped and free to be a focused minister of the gospel. We need you. That doesn't mean we, we cut out a desire to be married. But if it's seen as, as, as some sort of deliverance that we're waiting on, if it's seen as identity inducing, it will bring about a settling for and possibly a pursuing of unhealthy relationships. Because, well, I got to be married. And I'll tell you, I apologize on behalf of the church, capital C, for ever promoting marriage above singleness. Whether we've set it out straight out or we've just, in the way that we go about ministry and promoting a culture if I have done it, if we have a church, church capital C has done it, I apologize. And it is my prayer that we as a church, if we're going to encourage healthy singleness, if we're going to promote the biblical ethic of healthy sexuality, that we are a church that brings community to everyone. And we find our starting point in the life-giving, enduring relationship and identity that can only be found in Christ. Nowhere else. That's the starting point. In the gospel of John chapter four, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. The very mention of Samaria or Samaritans in Jesus' day would, 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 would be distasteful to Jews. There's no, there's no way around it. Jews were racist towards Samaritans, Samaritans towards Jews. And there, was, there were historical reasons, there were religious differences. But Jesus finds himself in the middle of the day speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well, at Jacob's well. It's been there for centuries. And John, who writes the gospel of John and, and John's letters, he is such a gifted storyteller, always pointing to how the, the larger cosmic story is stepping into our everyday experience. It's a, it's a common thing, a common theme in scripture for relationships to start at the well, for marriage relationships to start at the well, for women to be looking at the well. <laughs> the very place where they, they can give themselves nourishment through water, they're looking for spouses. And we see it throughout scripture. We see with Jacob and Isaac and, and Moses, meetings that took place at a well and led to marriages. And we see a woman whose who scholars will say she's there in the middle of the day. Most likely, women normally would go in the cool of the morning, in the cool of the evening, but she's walked through some stuff in her relationships. We find out she's been married five times, and she's now cohabiting, we would modern day, we would say, cohabiting with someone who's not her husband. And so there's this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It has all sorts of connotations to it. This is a woman in search of healthy relationship, who's walking through. And the text doesn't say, you know, she, she cheated on these guys. And so the, the, we don't know whether the five guys died. It's, all it's saying is relationships are broken. <laughs> that fundamentally, there's, there's a brokenness to human relationship. And Jesus says to her in verse 10, he's asked for water. 
Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. After their conversation, it says further down that the woman runs into her village and she leaves her water jar there. She doesn't take it with her. She leaves it with Jesus. Guys, this is a, I believe it's a great metaphor, a call to all who call themselves Christ followers. Anytime our relationships, married, single, do not start at the living water of Christ, they will be defined by the limited water supply that we can find in other people. And we will drain other people. They will be frustrated and we will never be satisfied if we try to make someone else feed us, give us drink in a way that only Christ can. Every relationship that that woman had uh, with those around her now found new meaning. They found new significance. She wasn't going to give herself to people in the same way because she found living water. Doesn't matter how many times she's been married, (laughs) whether she got married again, but because she had found her truest source of self and relationship and life and identity in the person of Jesus. That is the relationship that will protect us from giving more of ourselves than we ought to. From lacking mutual humility in our marriages. Or taking or expecting more from others than we ought to. That's our source of healthy relationship, which feeds into every other relationship that we find ourselves in. And it's a safeguard from giving ourselves over more than we ought to. It's the foundation of a a healthy view of marriage, a a healthy view of of singleness. And an answer to the myth that our, our significance can be found in any other source but Christ. Guys, when you and I come to Christ, we are welcomed into a body. Scripture talks about the body of Christ as he lived on the earth that was resurrected. Talks about the body of Christ as the church. And it talks about the body of Christ as the bread that we celebrate with. And I try to remind you guys of this all the time. So forgive me for saying it again. Paul did not write 1 Corinthians to an individual person. He did not write Romans to an individual person. Everything that he writes is meant to be lived out in community. We don't like the church pushing back in this area of our life. But part of what it means to gather as the church is to say, I'm not living my life on my own. I'm in covenant with Christ, which by the way, means you're in covenant with each other. And we are living this life together as we abide in Christ and abide with each other. One of the ways we remind ourselves of that, the way we give ourselves handles of that, to remember that we're in a much larger story and that whether we're single, whether we're married, 
whatever, that all plays out in a larger story and finds meaning and purpose is by taking communion together. That as we take communion together, we're reminded that our very source of life came, lived, died, and was resurrected again. And that, that changes all of history. It changes every single story in this room. It shines new light on every single story. I don't care how you came in. I don't care what closets, what, what skeletons you have, or how many closets, but what skeletons you have in your closet. You are, you are welcome into the family. You, you, you are welcome to be a part of this family because of what Christ did. And so we find our, our new story in him. But when we take communion, we also remember that this story is going somewhere. So we take communion, we, we eat the bread and we, we take the cup and we remember what Christ did. We remember the breaking of the, the, the giving of his body, the spilling of his blood. But also when we eat, we look to the future because he says, one day you're going to eat this with me. This is practice for the, the meal when we're going to sit across the table from Christ and we're going to eat this meal with him. So the, as we take communion, it reminds us of the full arc of this story. But also Jesus wants us to abide with him. Christianity is not pie in the sky when you die. It is a relationship here and now. And so in the same way that, that bread nourishes our body, Christ wants to remind us that he is here to nourish us, heart, mind, and soul, to give us living water. So we are going to take communion now. Now, like I said, we're cozy today. So what we're going to do, and we're going to have the, uh, the gluten-free bread will be on this side. Everybody can take, it's okay. If you're not a gluten-free person, you can still eat the bread. So that bread will be over here, and we'll have the other bread over here. And how we do it here at Town Center, guys, is we'll make our way down these two aisles, and you can take the bread in the cup, and we, we tear off the bread, and we dip it in the cup, and we walk, go to your left here, to your right here, and you can go up the stairs and go that way, and it kind of all moves, flows fairly well. But I do want to say this. If you're not a Christ follower, maybe, maybe, you just, uh, maybe you're just checking out the church today. What a, what a great message to come and listen to. Um, Maybe you're kind of new to the church. Maybe you've been coming for a while, but you are not at the point where you would say, yes, I find my, my identity, my hope, my fullest life, and my joy in following Christ. If, if that's not in you, and, and you, you, these are just snacks to you. So I, I would invite you as the rest of us are worshiping and coming down to, to just leave that and just allow other people to, where this means something to, to take advantage of this. But I would say this, if, if, if you want to know more about what it means to follow Christ, I'll be up here after the service. I would love to talk to you about it. And it would be all of our greatest joy that you would take communion with us in a few weeks when we have communion again. So I'm going to invite the team to come up and, uh, I'm going to quickly pray and let's worship together. And when you feel ready, you don't, we don't all need to rush up, but when you feel ready, you can step out and come down and we'll take communion together. Jesus, it's such a relief to know that we don't have to run the treadmill. We don't need to jump up and down and wave our arms to get your attention. You pursue us. You, you've run after us. Your love is tenacious and, and you will not give up on us. And, and we thank you so much, Jesus, that we can find our fullest humanity because you gave up your own life. That we can find our fullest humanity because you took on humanity. We're reminded, as Paul writes in Philippians, that although you were in the comfort of heaven, you took on flesh and you walked among us, knowing full well that that would mean that your body would be beaten and bruised, that you would go to a cross, you would give up your body, and you would spill your blood as a payment for our sins. 
So as we take this communion now, we remember. We remember your sacrifice. And may it weigh heavy on our hearts. Not only the brutality and the twistedness of sin, but also the extent of your love. As we take the bread and the cup, may we also look forward with hope and joy because we know where this story is going. And as we think of our life right now, may you bring us sustenance in this moment for whatever we're facing this week. Whether it be in our marriage, may it be in our, in our singleness, maybe be at work, maybe at school, whatever it is, we pray, Christ, that you would give us sustenance, fill us with your spirit, give us comfort and counsel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.